Hey everybody, it's the With a Bullet Podcast. I'm Matt Golden. Uh, we're on to the fourth installment of the series on the decline of alternative rock radio, um, past the halfway point here. And the chart that we're going to be discussing this time around is from September 13th, 1997. Um, I probably would have been heading back to Cincinnati to start my second year of college when this chart came out. I was moving into my very first apartment, um, apartment which was sort of close to campus, but um, it was definitely in a somewhat shitty neighborhood, and it was kind of a shitty building, to be honest. Uh, but it was only 275 a month, so I put up with that. And I was actually back in Cincinnati last week, and I was pretty surprised that that building was still around. But uh, the dorm that I talked about in our last episode has been completely gutted and rebuilt, though. So all the doors and walls that had the coolest shaker stickers on them are gone now. Um, I'm kind of sad about that, actually. But anyway, I, I spent the summer of 97 up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Um, my dad got transferred up there. And the alternative station up there was called The Edge, um, kind of similar name to The End in Cleveland. And uh, both stations actually kicked off with the exact same stunt. They um, played R.E.M.'s that It's the End of the World as We Know It for 24 hours straight before adopting the alternative format. And they more or less played exactly what we're going to talk about on this chart, but they occasionally threw in like the replacements or Sugar because they're local heroes. But it was never for the replacements. It was never really anything besides like I'll be you or um, um, I will dare. I mean, the least challenging replacement singles. But um Anyway, at the same time, um, Channel Z in Cincinnati, which I mentioned in the other episode, um, changed their format slightly, almost to like a triple A format, kind of like the lighter alternative format. But they also played a lot more like Lilith Fair type stuff, um, more Brit pop, more electronica, stuff that The Edge in Minneapolis mostly avoided. And unlike The Edge, um, Channel Z more or less completely ignored the Ska revival. I mean, I still get my fill of the Ska revival on like MTV or whatever, but you know, it wasn't on the radio. And these two stations were so different that like when I would go back and forth between these two places, I mean, it was jarring. I mean, it was hard to believe that they're both considered alternative or marketed as alternative. They're, it seems like they're two different things. And they would end up straying even further away from each other between this chart and the next one. But anyway, now that we're all caught up on where I was, um, let's just get into the chart here with number 40. Uh, number 40, we have Love Spit Love with Long, Long Time. I was very surprised to see these guys again um, after the 1994 episode, because uh, really the only things that I ever remember hearing from them were Am I Wrong, which I talked about there, and their cover of um, The Smiths' How Soon Is Now, which I think they covered for the Kraft soundtrack, which would have been like sometime in 95. I just kind of assumed that they vanished into obscurity or just started playing as a psychedelic furs again. But no, they're back here in 97 with the uh, first single to their follow-up album, um, which was called Try Some, Eat One. And the song sounds vaguely like um, pretty in pink, um, but it's kind of updated to the to 
like the mid to late 90s here. I mean, there's nothing really special about it. Um, this one peaked at number 33. Um, another single from this album, Fall on Tears, also charted, but I don't remember that one at all either. And after that, they did just refer to being the psychedelic furs again. Number 39, um, Monaco with um, What Do You Want For Me? Monaco. Um, this is the entire country of Monaco playing here. Um, one of the smallest countries in the entire world, but they did have the biggest band. Um, about 30,000 members. Um, Prince Rainier um, sang. Um, Princess Stephanie played lead guitar. I kind of prefer their early stuff when Princess Grace was still on the drums, but it, you know, it was never really the same band after she died, but no, actually this is, um, this isn't the country of Monaco. This is actually a group led by Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. And this more or less just sounds like a more Britpop oriented version of New Order. I do remember, um, Channel Z in Cincinnati playing this from time to time, but the edge of Minneapolis wouldn't have touched this with a 10-foot pole. It's not their thing. But this did peak at number 24, and it was their only appearance on this chart, um, but it did do much better in their native UK. Um, it actually peaked at number 11 on their regular charts there, so um, good for them. 38, uh, Collective Soul with Listen. Uh, Collective Soul are back, and they were somehow on their third album by now and this was the second single from that um this one isn't as bad as it's just completely forgettable um i've never seen the video for this um but in it they're kind of like being entombed alive in a brick silo by like masons as the video goes along and i assume that they did actually get out of there they didn't leave them in this silo because they did put out albums after this unfortunately um this did peak at number 17 and it was their sixth number one on the mainstream rock charts um yeah collective soul again so okay uh number 37 um everclear with everything to everyone uh first appearance for everclear in this series um we skipped right over the time period where um santa monica was getting played practically every second on alternative radio and they're here now with um this one which was the first single from so much for the afterglow of an album that i remember being weirdly critically acclaimed at the time um you wouldn't think that everclear was critically acclaimed but they were kind of i mean they didn't end up on like the passage job list or anything but it did receive pretty good reviews um i for example, um, Spin gave it an 8 out of 10, for example. But anyway, um, this song is more or less an attack on people pleasers. Um, Art Alex Gakis, um, who is the lead singer of Everclear, um, thinks that most of these people are two-faced. And I mean, that's basically it. I mean, he never said that this was about anyone in particular, but he did mention that he ran into a lot of people in the music industry that were basically like this. And the backing track for this was sped up 10% for the original recording. Why they did that? Why not? You know, but the problem with that was that they had to go back and re-record all of Art's vocals afterwards, but that's just a minor problem. And they also had a lot of record scratching in this one. Um, we're getting to the period where like every third song had to have record scratches in it, whether it made any sense or not. 
Um, Everclear did not have a DJ, so obviously this one does not make sense. And they ended up making two videos for this song. Um, the first, which never aired, um, is filmed what's supposed to be like a trendy party in a mansion. And according to the band, the mansion where they filmed this was also the same mansion um, that was used in The Big Lebowski. And uh, Rose McGowan appears in the video as kind of like the queen of the scene um, at the party that they're at. And I'm not sure why they scrapped this version. Um, it honestly would have fit in well with what was being played on MTV at the time. But they decided to go with the second one instead, which seems like it had a much lower budget. I mean, they probably just blew everything in the first video. I mean, in this one, they're just in like a blue room that rotates. Um, it still ended up getting played on MTV, MTV a lot. So I guess it all worked out for them in the end. Uh, this did end up going to number one on this chart. It was their only number one. So technically, this is their biggest hit, even though Santa Monica is obviously more recognizable. And they will be back in our next episode with another single from this album. So um, stay tuned for that. Number 36, Dandy Warhols with Not If You Are The Last Junkie On Earth. I, I'm kind of glad that this one popped up because it gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite rock documentaries ever, which is called Dig, uh, which documents the feud between the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And this song was kind of one of the things in the movie that like sparked their whole rivalry. Uh, they started out in the beginning of it as friends. like They hung out with each other whenever they happened to be in the same town. They made guest appearances at each other's shows and so on. So basically what happens is the Dandy Warhols get their big record deal first, something which never happened to the Brian Jonestown Massacre. They did end up on a major label, but it was basically the one label that they didn't completely alienate while they were being courted by them. And then they just put out like one album before they got dropped. But anyway... Shortly after the Dandy Warhols finished recording their major label debut, Courtney Taylor um, from this band and Anton Newcomb from the Brian Johnstown Massacre were out driving around somewhere. And this is in their big film doing this in the documentary. And Courtney pulls out the tape of this and goes, hey, you want to hear her single? And Anton's initially excited. But then it gets like three seconds into the song and he just gets like this mortified look at his face and it just like freezes like that for the rest of the song. Like the song was so bad that it made him catatonic. And also Anton was also kind of a junkie. So maybe he thought it was about him. But anyway, shortly after that, um, the Dandy Warhols invited the guys from Brian Jonestown Massacre to the video shoot for this, which had was a really big budget affair directed by a famous fashion photographer and the guys from brian jones from massacre weren't like oh wow our friends made the big time or anything i mean they were just like all extremely jealous of them and um, they're shown like dr driving off in their van afterwards and they're like openly mocking the song openly mocking the dandy warhols pretending to shoot up and stuff like that and then they decided to write an answer song to this, which was called um, Not If You're the Last Dandy on Earth, um, which was kind of done in the Dandy Warhol style, but it kind of alludes to the fact that the dandies might have been junkies themselves. 
And then it kind of accelerated after that um, to the point where Anton Newcomb actually sent the Danny Warhols of shotgun shells with their names printed on them. And then like restraining orders ended up getting sent out and like so on. And at some point, Newcomb explained to the Danny Warhols that he was just trying to manufacture like a Blur Oasis style feud and in order to like boost both of the brand's profiles, um, which really, I mean, who knows about that? <laughs> um, the documentary is a lot funnier than I'm making it seem here. It's very quotable. I mean, I can't think of either one of these bands without like, you broke my fucking sitar, motherfucker, or we're fucking white when I and come what I call popping into my head, or or even like, um, what's that? Blood. Where did it come from? people's faces stuff like that I, I mean i could just go on forever with that i mean the whole thing is on youtube if you want to check it out anyway uh, this song isn't as bad as anton newcomb and the guys from brian jonestown massacre made it up to be it's not really that great either i mean the video is very over the top um the director dave la chapelle really should have taken some of courtney taylor's suggestions for that because Courtney Taylor had made thousands of videos after all. I'm um, just quoting Dig again there. But anyway, on to number 35. Uh, we have Buck 09 with My Town. Uh, these guys were a ska band from San Diego. Um, this chart is somewhat heavy on ska bands, so um, just be pre prepared for that. And supposedly their name comes from a really bad Your Mama joke or... The amount of money that these guys once pulled together to as a band when they tried to get beer. I'm, I'm not sure what you could get from for like a buck oh nine back then, probably just like a 40 or something. But anyway, um, this was the first single from their uh, major label debut, um, 28 Teeth. And I don't really remember this one at all. Um, all of the sky hits, except for like the really obvious ones, all kind of run together to me. But this one's more or less just a tribute to San Diego. Um, it's not really that much different than Michael Stanley Band's My Town. Uh, they really should have just done a ska version of that instead of this. Uh, this was their only hit on this chart, and it only peaked like three spaces higher than this. So, I mean, that's pretty much all I have to say about these guys. Number 34, um, County Crows with Have You Seen Me Lately. I sort of remember the Counting Crows single that we had in our last episode. This one, I don't remember at all. And like Angels of Silence uh, from that last episode, this one does sort of rock by their standards, but that's really all you can say about this one. Um, it didn't have a video. Um, I did find a video of them performing it on some show from Fuse about a decade after it came out. And um, Adam Duritz was already obviously wearing a wig by that point. Um, check out some like recent pictures of Adam Duritz to see how bad this wig looks. But anyway, uh, this was its peak on the chart, um, but it was completely off the charts by October. So um, that's it for that one. Number 33. Oh, dear Lord. Um, 311 with Prisoner. Um, it's 311 for the second week in a row. This was the second single from their Transistor album, and this one is bad even by their standards. Um, if this was released as a single, I can't imagine how horrible the rest of the Transistor album was. And I wasn't going to take time to like dive into that album to find out either, so I'm just going to leave it at that. 
I do remember the video for this um, popping up on MTV from time to time. Um, there's like a woman in like a float tank and it's like in the middle of a lecture hall and she's being observed by a bunch of weird Victorian era guys. Um, they all kind of look like Jeremy Bentham. I'm not sure if uh, Jeremy Bentham is too much of an obscure reference, but just Google Jeremy Bentham to figure out what I'm talking about here. Uh, but between the tank and all these Jeremy Benthams, you have the the singer and rapper from Free, 311 doing like their stupid 311 dances. Um, it's sort of odd for a Nebraskan white boy reggae video. Uh, but this one only peaked at number 21. Um, none of the singles from Transistor were like down or all mixed le up level huge. But unfortunately, we aren't done with 311 yet. We have more 311 to come in this series. Uh, number 32, Blues Traveler with Most Precarious. Another single that I don't really remember. I wasn't really expecting these guys to turn up on here after like 95 or so. And there's nothing really that special about this one. It sounds like every other Blues Traveler song. It's like run around with like a worse chorus. And this would be their last appearance on the alternative charts, but they still continue to do fairly well on the AAA charts after this one. Um, this one was actually a number one single on the AAA chart, by the way, but that's pretty much all you can say about this one. 31, uh, Kay's Choice with Not an Addict. Um, Kay's Choice were a Belgian group. Um, they are led by the Benton siblings. Um, their name was originally The Choice, but they found out that there was another group across the Atlantic called The Choice, so they added a K in the front of it um, just to get around that. Um, there wasn't really a specific reason why they picked K other than it just sounded good in front of choice. But they're on here in large part due to Alanis Morissette. Um, they opened up for her on her 96 tour, a job that they got because um, Alanis was impressed by their set when they just happened to play at the same festival over in Europe. And that stint ended up introducing them to the North American audience and um, gave them a chance to re-release this single, a song which was already a hit for them in most of Europe for a couple of years before this. Um, it sort of sounds like live if they replaced Ed Kowalchuk with Kim Carnes. That's what she kind of sounds like here. And the moral of this song is that drugs are bad. That's pretty much all that it's about and you can tell that this one wasn't written by native english speakers i mean they probably originally wrote the lyrics for this in like a flemish or walloon dialect and then just basically translated it directly into english without like bothering to have anybody who actually speaks english <laughs> look it over it's basically the same thing that like abba or like Roxette used to do but it was a fairly sizable hit on this chart. Um, it did make it to number five. I thought that this was their only hit, but the follow-up to this, which was every everything for free, also made it. And I checked out that song, and I didn't remember that one at all. But Case Choice are still together. They're still putting out albums, and they are still pretty popular in the Benelux countries, for whatever it's worth. Number 30 here, we have... Filter and Crystal Method with Can't You Trip Like I Do. Filter and cr the Crystal Method. Um, it doesn't get better than this. Actually, it does. I mean, 
really most things are better than this. Um, this was from the Spawn soundtrack, um, and that soundtrack consisted entirely of electronica acts collaborating with rock acts, kind of trying to do the same thing that the Judgment Night soundtrack did with like alt rock and rap a few years before this. But anyway, they had like Butthole Surfers teaming up with Moby. Um, Slayer teaming up with Atari Teenage Riot, um, Henry Rollins teaming up with Goldie, and so on. And the original version of this was an instrumental and originally appeared on the Crystal Methods album Vegas. And basically all Filter did was just like add lyrics and like yelling to this. Um, I didn't like this, but at the same time, I thought this song was hilarious um filters hey man nice shot was kind of the same sort of way for me i just like laughed when it ever came <laughs> whatever came on the radio but i i was kind of surprised that this only peaked at number 29 i i remember hearing this one fairly often and um this is the last appearance for crystal method in the series but we are going to hear from Hil filter again yay At number 29, we have Radiohead with Let Down. Uh, first appearance for Radiohead in the series. Um, started this too late for Creep, and I missed all the all three of the hits from the band, so we're uh, kind of catching up with them here. Uh, this was a promotional single. Um, they didn't actually have any official singles in this country from OK Computer, um, but this one came out on the radio after... Um, paranoid android and karma police so i guess you could call it the third single even though it really wasn't anyway i i wouldn't say that this is one of the best songs on okay computer but it probably would be the most obvious choice for a single i mean karma police and no surprises are also obvious choices i guess but they made a video for this, but they scrapped it. Um, unlike the Everclear video that I talked about earlier, um, this one hasn't resurfaced on YouTube. Um, it's weird that I'm mentioning um, Radiohead and Everclear in the same breath. But anyway, um, it's, a, it's a good song from a great album. That's, that's what I'll say about this one. And this was its peak on the chart. Um, it was the last song from OK Computer to make it on here. Um, surprisingly, no surprises um, didn't make it on here. Um, yeah. Um, number 28, um, The Wallflowers um, with The Difference. Um, another single from their uh, Bringing Down the Horse album. Um, we had the first one, Sixth Avenue Heartbreak, in our um, last episode. Uh, this one is a lot more up beat the, the two singles that came before it. it it was their big rock number i guess but it still more or less sounds exactly like the counted crows um this one was played fairly often in cincinnati but i don't remember hearing this one ever when i was in the twin cities which is something which is sort of odd because there is like a minnesota connection to this song um gary luris from the jayhawks um, is singing background vocals here, and they did play the Jayhawks from time to time up there. And obviously, um, Jacob Dylan's dad was originally from Minnesota. I mean, usually they were all over that sort of thing, but they weren't in this case. Uh, this peaked at number five. Um, it was also a top five hit on the um, AAA and mainstream rock charts, which isn't really a surprise. And it was also nominated um, for a Grammy for Best Rock Song, but they ended up losing to themselves. 
Uh, one headlight actually beat it out there. But anyway, this is the last that we're going to hear from Jacob Dylan in this series. Um, on to 27 here. Um, the Sundays was summertime. Uh, this was their comeback single. Um, they were kind of big on this chart in the era just before Nirvana popped up. Um, here's where the story ends was a number one hit in this chart in 1990. And I was shocked to find out that they came out in 1990 because it sounds like something that would have come out of the UK in like 86 or 87. I swear to God that I heard that song before 1990, but obviously I didn't. And another hit, um, Love, was almost as big of a as that one um that one also sounds like it came straight out of 1986 and then they vanished for a few years um they're having problems with their label in the uk and um singer harriet wheeler and um guitarist um david gaverin um decided to start a family and they're also wiped out from touring so they just decided to take a break so uh, this was their first single in five years and they still sounded like they're from 86 or 87 but in a completely different way um, instead of doing like the typical jangle pop they're almost doing um, a fist pop type of thing here you can almost imagine like swing out sister or somebody like that doing this uh, this did get played a lot in cincinnati um it was right up their alley it was kind of like all their interests colliding there and um, it ended up um, peaking at number 10 on this chart. Um, this was their last charting single, and that's mainly because they haven't put out anything since then. But um, supposedly they are making music, just not releasing it anywhere. But anyway, uh, number 26, we have Green Day with Hitching a Ride. Um, this was the first single from their Nimrod album, and it was actually making its debut this week. Uh, they're doing sort of a 16 tons blank generation uh, stray cat strut type of thing here. <laughs> I seem to remember this one vanishing from the radio fairly quickly, I'm, but it was actually around for 24 weeks, which really surprised me. Um, maybe it just didn't fit in with the format they're going for in Cincinnati and they just decided to bury it. I mean, who knows? Um, that station was all over the follow-up to this, though, um, which was time of your life, though. But anyway, this song's okay, I guess. It, it is just kind of a typical Green Day thing, though. But anyway, uh, moving on to 25, we have Goo Goo Dolls with Lazy Eye. Uh, this is another one of those singles that I can't remember at all. Um, this was on the Batman and Robin soundtrack, um, the George Clooney Batman uh, the one where Batman had nipples on his suit for some reason. Um, and this one is a very standard alt-rock song, um, completely generic. Um, there's really nothing to say about it. Uh, the one surprise for this was that the video wasn't a movie video. I mean, I was expecting clips of, like, um, George Clooney's nipples or um, Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, cool party. But there's none of that here, unfortunately. Uh, this peaked at number 20. Um, they are going to be back in our next installment with a much bigger movie soundtrack hit, though. So uh, stay tuned for that one. Uh, 24 Blur with Song 2. Woohoo! Um, everybody on Earth has heard this one, so I'm not going to really spend that much time on it. I'm kind of surprised that this was sticking around on the charts because I definitely heard this one for the first time back in the dorms. Uh, this was its 23rd week on the chart, to give you an idea. 
And supposedly this one was inspired by them getting slagged by Beavis and Butthead. Um, when their Chemical World video popped up on that show, um, Beavis said that he wanted to pee on them. And they also weren't fans of Park Law, if, um, shockingly, when that one popped up on there. So uh, Blur set out to write something that um, Beavis and Butthead wouldn't make fun of, and they ended up coming up with this. And it worked because um, Beavis and Butthead went off the air um in 1997 and they never really got around to making fun of it so um kind of a win there for blur but anyway surprisingly this wasn't blur's biggest hit on this chart um there's no other way and uh girls and boys did do better but have either of those songs ever popped up in a beer commercial i think not so advantage song to there but number 23 we have uh force for the trees with dream I didn't recognize the band name or the song title for this one, but as soon as I heard the opening um, opening um, chant of I'm the first person, you're the second person, earlier today I was in the third person, I was like, oh, yeah, that. But first for Trees were essentially a one-man band led by a guy named Carl Stevenson, and um, Stevenson co-wrote four songs on Beck's Mellow Gold album, including Loser, and not surprisingly, this song is also very Beck-esque. It, everything in the kitchen sink is in this one. Um, you have sitars, gamelons, bagpipes, animal noises, and so on. It's kind of interesting, I guess, is what you how you describe it. But um, this song and the album that it came off of um, were recorded all the way back in 93, right around the same time that um, Stevenson was working with Beck. And it was... Um, shelled for four years, mainly because um, Stevenson was institutionalized for some undisclosed mental illness. He had improved by this point, but not to the point where um, he was allowed by his handlers to do interviews, tour, or even appear in the video for this song. But there was only one other Forest for the Trees release after this, um, an EP which came out in 99. And um, Stevenson has had only a couple of other credits on other people's stuff since then of the latest being in like 2006 so hopefully still out there and doing okay um but anyway um number 22 we have the verve pipe with villains uh, not to be confused with the verve who would make it near the top of the charts um a few months after this with bittersweet symphony of um, shockingly that one is not going to be on the 98 episode that i'm doing but anyway the verve pipe we're a band from East Lansing, Michigan. I'm assuming they're all huge Sparty fans, but uh, they're led by the Vander Ark brothers. Um, Brian, who is a lead singer and primary songwriter and uh, Brad, who played bass. And they kind of sounded like live um, something, which is sort of a running theme on this chart and something that's not really a surprise because they shared the same producer with live um, former talking heads member, Jerry Harrison and they made it to this chart a couple of times before this one with Photograph, um, which was a much bigger hit on this chart than I thought. That one peaked at number six. And The Freshman, which was um, more or less their lightning crashes, um, a song which was more or less inescapable in the spring of 97, it made it to number one. It was lousy. But anyway, this was the third single. Uh, the title track for the album that both Photograph and The Freshman came from. I don't remember this one at all. I mean, I just assume that they 
vanish off the face of the earth after after the freshman. Um, it rocks a little bit more than the first two singles that charted, but that's not really an accomplishment to like rock more than the freshman. But anyway, this one isn't really anything special. It was this was its peak on the chart. Um, they made it back one more time after this at 99, but we're not going to talk about that one because it's not on the chart I'm doing for 99. But anyway, on to number 21, um, we have Artificial Joy Club with Sick and Beautiful. Um, they're a Canadian group. Um, the two leaders of this group, um, singer Louise Rennie and producer um, Leslie Howe, um, started out back in the 80s as a pop group one-to-one. And they had a handful of hits up there in Canada, a couple of which, um, Angel in My Pocket and Peace of Mind, did make it on this side of the border and ended up scraping the very bottom of the Hot 100. I think, like, the biggest one of those two ended up peaking at, like, 92 or something. But I checked out both of these songs, and one of them sounds exactly like Belinda Carlisle's um, Mad About You, and the other one sort of sounds like Roxette. Um, second Roxette reference in this episode. But while they were in their one-to-one days, um, Howe also produced the first two albums for a little-known, um, you-can't-do-that-on-television alum named Alanis Morissette. Um, what happened to her? Um, who knows? But anyway, um, Rennie and Howe decided to hop on the alternative bandwagon at some point. Um, they hired a couple of other guys to fill out the band, and put out a couple of albums as um, Sal's Birdland. Um, Sal was apparently Rennie's nickname. But anyway, those albums went nowhere. They switched labels. They changed their name again. And then you have this. I really hated this song. It's it's like the worst elements of Garbage and Lannis. Hey, there's Lannis. That's what happened to her. Uh, coming together here. And the lyrics are just fucking terrible. I mean, I could really just point out any of these but the the crusted like a worn out penthouse line is the one that stands out and that one's in the chorus so you have to hear it about four times but this was their only alternative hit in this country and thank god for that uh number 20 we have talk show with hello hello uh this is the stone temple pilots without scott wyland uh, Scott was going through drug issues, legal issues, and so on. So the rest of the guys just decided to go on without him. They hired um, Dave Couts from the hair metal band 10-Inch Men um, as a replacement and decided to change their name to Talk Show for some reason. And the song more or less sounds like a glam-sounding version of Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, that's it. I mean, I mean there's really nothing special about it. I do remember hearing this one on the radio a lot, but just because it was on the radio didn't mean that anybody was really interested in going out and buying a non-Scott Weiland Stone Temple Pilots album, especially one that didn't have the band's name on the cover. Um, The only talk show album peaked 127 places lower of the previous Stone Temple Pilots album. And Scott Weiland's solo album, which came out a few months after this, um, was also kind of a commercial disappointment, though not as big of a disappointment as the talk show album. So in the wake of that, they did actually decide to get back together. And they had a pretty sizable but um, short-lived comeback in 99. But the other guys in the band have continued on with other lead singers since Scott Weiland has died. 
Um, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park and some guy named Jeff Gutt have taken his place since then. Uh, but they made the wise decision not to change their name this time around. Uh, number 19, we have Third Eye Bly Blind with Graduate. Um, first of two appearances for Third Eye Blind on this chart. Uh, just take a wild guess on what the other song is. And this was the first band that I remember popping up on alternative radio were, who were open about the fact that they had absolutely no alternative cred at all. I mean, there were bands on here before that had absolutely no cred. I mean, Candlebox, for example, Bush, for example, Collective Soul, and so on. But all those bands kind of either played up their, like, really loose connections to the scene, like... Eddie Vedder was their mom's boss's cousin, or they met like Kurt Cobain at a Denny's or something like that, or at least they made like an effort to look alternative or something like that. Um, with Third Eye Blind, you, you didn't get any of that. I mean, lead singer Stephen Jenkins looked like an actor, and whenever he was interviewed on MTV or in like Rolling Stone or whatever, um, he just sounded like a marketing guy from their label and not like somebody who was in the actual band. Um, in a way, it was refreshing. I mean, they weren't trying to be something that they weren't, but I still wrote them off. I mean, I mean, they might have been open about being phonies, but they are still phonies. But anyway, this song was better than I remembered. It's been about 20 years since I've heard this, and it doesn't really bug me as much as it did back in 1997 i mean it's the only song on this chart where my opinion has changed but speaking of people changing their minds um this band has sort of been critically reassessed in recent years um pitchfork gave this album uh, gave the album that this came off of um an 8.3 earlier this year um, for example something i never would have imagined happening but my theory about this reassessment is that the the people who would have had Third Eye Blind as their first favorite band, people who would have been like 10 or 11 in 1997 were finally old enough to be rock critics. I mean, who knows about that, though? But anyway, the song ended up peaking at number three or number 14. And we're going to hear from these guys in a little bit. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, number 18, uh, The Prodigy with Breathe, um, heading back into Big Beat Technoland for this one. Um, this one is a duet between um, singer, rapper, dancers, Keith Flint, and Maxim Reality. It's pretty similar to their breakthrough single, Firestarter, but it's kind of like the lesser version of that. I like Firestarter a lot, but I was pretty disappointed by this one, and... The video for this one is pretty typical 90s stuff, but I did notice that they more or less stole the look from um, Jared Leto's version of the Joker from Keith Flint's look in this video. I mean, he even has like purple and green hair for Christ's sake, but this one did get played a lot in Cincinnati. Um, I don't remember hearing it at all up in Minnesota, but this was a major hit um, on the other side of the Atlantic. It actually went to number one in several countries and, including their native UK, but it didn't do as well here. It only made this chart, and this was actually its peak here, which kind of surprised me. But anyway, on to number 17, um, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones with the impression that I get. Have you ever been close to tragedy? Close to those who have? 
Jesus, how many, how many weeks had this been on the chart at this point? 28 weeks. That, that That's still not as long of a run as I expected. I mean, that only takes you back to like March. I, I could have sworn that the, that I heard this for the first time all the way back in 96. But anyway, this is a former number one hit for the Ska Kings of Boston. Um, this one was inspired by um, lead singer Dickie Barrett um, going to a funeral of a brother of his friend and realizing that he'd never really experienced a personal tragedy of this magnitude himself. And he hoped that nothing like that would happen to them, to him. But, you know, it's inevitable. It happens to everybody. But that's what this song is about. Um, the never had to knock on wood line um, really annoyed me at the time because with the way it's sung, it's implied that um, you knock on wood if you've experienced some sort of tragedy or had bad luck. Um, not the standard meaning of the expression where you knock on wood to ward off bad luck. I mean, maybe instead of I never had to knock on wood, it's I never had to comma knock on wood. I mean, that would make slightly more sense. But in every version of the lyrics I could find, um, they didn't have the punctuation in there. So I guess... Um, they didn't understand the expression. Um, that's the impression that I get anyway. Ooh. Uh, ooh. I, I got I got a knock on wood here for that one. That that was my coffee table. But anyway, um number 16. Um Our Lady Peace with Superman's Dead. Uh oh, dear Lord. This is one of the worst songs to ever get played on alternative rock radio. I mean I could not get around this guy's voice. It's like the worst elements of like Billy Corrigan and Ed Kowalczyk's voices melding together. It's, I mean, it's like getting stabbed in the ear listening to this. It's, it's really, really annoying, but somehow this made it all the way up to number 11. And it was also a top 20 hit on the regular chart um, in their native Canada. But unfortunately we aren't done with our lady piece um, yet. Ugh. At number 15, we have Beck with Jackass. Uh, this was the last single from Odelay. It's kind of amazing that they were still releasing singles from that album in the summer of 97. But anyway, uh, this is one of the quietest songs on Odelay, and it's um, one of the best. It's um, based around a sample of them's cover of Bob Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Um, Beck must have really liked the Them Again album, because um, if you remember from the last episode, um, Devil's Haircut is based on a riff that Beck copied from I Can Only Give You Everything from that album. But um, the single version of this is slightly different than the album version. Uh, Beck had Butch Vig remix it, and it seems like there's an extra guitar part in there. Um, and the outro is completely different. Instead of it ending with like a, a hip hop beat and Beck messing around on an acoustic guitar. It ends with him saying it's a strange invitation over and over and over. Um, the video for this was a lot more straightforward than any of the other videos on Odelay. It's in black and white. Um, Beck's working in a coal mine in it. And at some point, um, Willie Nelson rolls by in a coal cart. Um, for some reason, the whole thing isn't on YouTube. It cuts off right when it gets to that Willie cameo. But anyway, great song. Um, this one peaked at number 15, and this is going to be the last appearance for Beck on here. Um, we're going to miss the Mutation singles, and uh, the series ends about a month before the 
first single from Midnight Vultures came out. So um, the end for back here. Uh, number 14, Third Eye Blind with Semi-Charmed Life. Um, well, what do you know? Third Eye Blind again. Uh, this easily the most upbeat song ever written about taking meth. <laughs> Supposedly, I mean, it was inspired by Stephen Jenkins seeing his friends using meth at a Primus concert. Uh, Jenkins apparently said no to the best, but he was like, you know, hey, here's a song idea. Um, there isn't really anything hiding what this is about in the lyrics. I mean, he says crystal meth in the song, even though that was bleeped out on MTV. I I mentioned that they were sort of weird about that thing. I, I'm not sure if it was bleeped out on the radio edit, too. I can't really remember. But you still have the line where he says, I bumped up, that I took the hit that I was given, that I bumped again, that I bumped again. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, um, but with it all with it being all happy sounding and like the doot doot doots in there, um, you just don't realize it. I mean, there are some questions about who actually wrote this song though. Um, Jenkins is credited as the sole songwriter of the song and nobody denies that he did write part of the song, but the question is like how much of it um, he admits that he paid a former bandmate 10 grand for the rights to the riff that ended up in the song. Um, but the guy who is actually playing the riff on the song, um, Third Eye Blind guitarist Kevin Kanogan, claimed that the riff was his idea. And this became an issue when um, Jenkins eventually fired him from the band. Um, Kanogan sued Jenkins for 25% of the royalties, um, a case which was ultimately dismissed. I mean, presumably Jenkins still had the check stub from the guy he actually stole it from. But... Anyway, um, this this song was inescapable in the summer of 97. I wouldn't say that it was the most overplayed song. We have a song coming up at number one that would probably win out there, but you did hear it a lot. Um, it had two separate stints on top of this chart. It was Billboard's um, number one alternative hit 90, of 97. It also made it to number four on the regular top 40 and uh, topped the hot 100 airplay charts for six weeks um it would have been number one on that chart when this um chart came out so um we are not done with these guys in the series um we actually have another single from this album coming up next time but anyway uh number 13 we have tonic if you could only see um some more water down live here um this one actually sounds more like live than the tonic song that we had in our last episode episode um hard to believe there but anyway this one was inspired by um an argument that lead singer MS emerson hart had with his mom um emerson was dating an older woman something which his mom didn't approve of and he wanted to marry her which she really didn't approve of but anyway emerson was like mom if he could only see how much he loves me and then like a cartoon light bulb sort of appeared over his head and the song was bored uh things didn't work out with Emerson and the older woman by the way um but he did get an ubiquitous um alternative rock hit out of the deal so kind of worked out for him um I was kind of surprised that this one only made it to number three based on how much it was played at the time I thought for sure it would have been a number one but it wasn't um, it did top the mainstream rock charts, and it spent a whopping 63 weeks on the Hot 100 Airplay charts. 
And amazingly, we aren't done with Tonic yet. Um, we have more Tonic coming up um, in a future episode. But anyway, number 12, uh, Real Big Fish with Sellout. Uh, more ska here. Uh, these guys were from Orange County, California, a place where like 98% of all third wave ska bands came from. And their name is a pun. See, it's Real Big Fish. And you're thinking it's really big fish, but you see it's real spelled R-E-E-L like a fishing reel. So it means catch big fish. Um, anyway, this song is more or less just um, Steve Albini's The Problem With Music set to a ska beat. And it's from the band's point of view before they actually get screwed over by the record company and make less money than they would have made at a 7-Eleven. So they're still happy about selling out. It's it's a happy song. Um, but this was their only hit, um, something which the band has made light of since then. Uh, their greatest hits compilation is actually called Our Greatest Hit and More. Uh, they did sell out for real with this one also. Um, they licensed this one for a few ga video game soundtracks, including um, FIFA 2000, which I actually owned. And... It was the only soccer game that I ever bought for PlayStation 1. So whenever I had the urge to play video game soccer, I had to hear this over and over again. Um, sports video games usually have pretty annoying soundtracks, but that game in particular had a really annoying soundtrack in due part to um, this song. But anyway, um, these guys are still together, still around playing live somewhere. Um, if you want to catch up some catch some ska i guess but anyway um number 11 um uh, the mighty mighty boss tones with the rascal king um the boss tones again here um this one sounds pretty similar to the impression that i get um these guys really didn't have much of a range but this one isn't about tragedy or knocking on wood it's about a corrupt 20th century politician <laughs> uh, the inspiration for this was um james michael curley um a four-time mayor of Boston, also a governor and congressman from Massachusetts, a guy who was almost like a Robin Hood figure in Boston. Um, Dickie Barrett from the Boston said, um, if you grew up Irish Catholic like I did in Boston, um, there's always three pictures hanging up in your father's den, the Pope, JFK, and James Michael Curley. Um, Curley expanded the transit system in Boston, um, improved the parks and the infrastructure in town. Um, did a lot to improve life in the slums, but at the same time, he was also uh, taking kickbacks, giving contracts to his buddies. Um, he spent part of one of his terms as mayor in federal prison for tax invasion. Um, he didn't resign. He uh, was still mayor while he was in prison. Um, he blackmailed um, JFK's grandpa not to run for a second term of mayor so he could take his place. And later on, um, Joe Kennedy also bribed him not to run for a third term in, term in Congress so um, JFK could take his place. But, I mean, that's a different story. But anyway, um, James Michael Curley was a character. And, I mean, if you're going to do a Scott tribute to anybody, I mean, why not him? And if there's a fourth wave Scott, which there probably will be, um, maybe someone could do one of these for, like, Rod Blagojevich or James Trafficant, too. I mean, why not? But anyway, this one didn't do quite as well as the impression I get. Um, it still went to the top 10, though. I mean, 
it was it was 97 it was sky it was gonna make it in there but this is the last time that the Boston's are going to pop up in here, which isn't really surprising. I mean, Scott did stop being a thing on alternative rock radio, maybe like six months after this. But moving on here to number 10, um, we have the sneaker pimps with six underground. Um, these guys were a trip hop group from the UK. And this was the only their only hit on this chart. Uh, they got their name from the Beastie Boys. Uh, the Beasties had a guy who worked for them whose entire job was to go out and uh, get hard-to-find sneakers for the guys, um, a job which might have been somewhat difficult in the early internet days. But anyway, um, the guy's job title was Sneaker Pimp, and apparently this guy was mentioned in an issue of Grand Royal Magazine, and uh, the group, this group ended up picking up on that and used it for their name. But... The single um, originally came out in the UK back in 96 um, and made it over here thanks to being included on the Saint soundtrack. Um, the Saint was a movie remake of the 60s TV show, and that one starred Val Kilmer as the Saint. I, I'm sure everybody remembers that one. I, w- I was going to say it was a bomb, but apparently it did do fairly well at the box office. I was kind of surprised to find that out, but... Anyway, um, this the song is based around two samples. Um, one's from the score of the James Bond movie Goldfinger. The other is um, one of the guys from De La Soul saying a one, two, a one, two over again. Um, supposedly, it's about living in a small town as a musician. Um, Chris Corner from The Pimps had this to say about it. Uh, you grew up in this shit town and you yearn to get out. A lot of artists, we just can't survive in a place like that. So the essence of the song is that living in a small town is like dying. For us, it was like a huge release to get out and explore the world, to see what everything's about. We all wanted that. You know, um, the northern industrial shithole, uh, that's what the song is really about. I mean, there's nothing in uh, the lyrics to indicate any of that so i'm just going to take um, chris corner's word for that i guess uh, this was played a lot in cincinnati um like practically ever every hour and because of that this one evokes being in um 1997 era cincinnati for me for better or worse but um this one peaked at number seven um just barely missed out on the regular top 40 um like i mentioned before this was their only hit on this chart um, but they did crack the Hot 100 and the dance charts with um, the follow-up to this, which was called Spin Spin Sugar, um, a song that I don't remember at all. That one did not get played on the radio where I was. At number nine, we have Fiona Apple with Criminal. Uh, second show in a row for Fiona. Uh, this was another single from her title album. Uh, she's more or less in pop mode in this song. Um, this one was kind of noted at the time for having a really sleazy looking video. And after 25 years, it is still kind of sleazy. Um, Fiona is basically just cavorting around a very 70s looking basement in her underwear with a bunch of models who are similarly undressed. And Fiona has admitted since then that this wasn't the best idea. Um, this is actually from a Washington Post interview that came out a couple of years after this. I had qualms when it was being made, but I could not admit it to myself, she says now. 
I'd done two videos and it wasn't satisfying. Everybody knew that they could get a lot more from me. And it came to me as everything could be great. So great. If you did this with Mark Romantic, he gets his videos played on MTV. And I thought, yeah, I'll get my video played. Apple on the road at the time was faxed to treatment. Okay. It's about sexual guilt. Fine. When she showed up for a two day shoot, she found out that her wardrobe consisted of a bed full of underwear. And all I could think of is I'm a teenage girl. If I'm in my underwear and everybody sees it and tells me I look great, it's going to make me feel good and I'm not going to argue. Then the video comes out and I just feel like an ass. Forget that I was in my underwear. I thought that it was cheesy. I didn't look like myself and it's kind of ruined the song to me. No offense to Mark Romantic. Well, I guess offense. I have total qualms about it now. Uh, but the controversy about the whole thing did help her, though. Um, this was on MTV a lot, um, something which didn't really happen for any of her other videos. Um, it made it to number 21 on the regular top 40, um, which is to this day her only Hot 100 entry ever. And it peaked at number four here. It was also the very last video to ever appear on the original run of Beavis and Buttheads. Um, they said that it looked like it was filmed at Butthead's uncle's house and that it was the longest Calvin Klein ad ever, in case you're wondering about what they said there. Um, it ended up winning a video music award for um, best cinematography a couple weeks before this. And like I mentioned in the last episode, she kind of blew everything with her this world is bullshit speech at that show but it wasn't for um when she won for this one like i thought it was when she won an award for um sleep to dream one of the other videos from that album but anyway um number eight um we have the foo fighters with everlong here uh this is probably their best song um like i mentioned a couple episodes ago um Dave Grohl wrote this one about Louise Post from uh, Veruca Salt, who he was dating at the time. And supposedly he came up with this at about 45 minutes, but he thought about not including the song on the Color and the Shape album because he thought he was ripping off Sonic Youth. Um, a comparison that's never really crossed my mind for this one. But he was so concerned about the fact that he was ripping them off that he actually... Um, went and played the song for Thurston more just to make sure he wasn't ripping them off. And Thurston's reaction was more or less like, why would you leave this off of the album? So uh, with Thurston's blessing, he went through with finishing this song. Uh, the video for this one is pretty odd. Um, it was directed by Michelle Gondry. So yeah, of course it would be. Uh, Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins are playing a couple and they're both dreaming about different situations where um taylor who's playing the girlfriend of the video is being imperiled by the other two foo fighters who are dressed up like 50s teddy boys for some reason um in both scenarios um dave ends up saving the day when his um, hand grows 10 times the normal size and he smacks the shit out of the other two guys it's weirder than i'm making it out to be um just trust me on this but this is the song that they've played the most live, um, and it's almost always the closing number. Um, seems like it would be pretty good closing number for them. But this is another one of those songs where I um, just assumed that it would be a number one on here, but it wasn't. Uh, this only peaked at number three, which is pretty decent, I guess. And it's re recharted a couple times recently. It's 
made the hot rocket alternative chart, which is a combination of this AAA and uh, the mainstream rock charts um, last year. And it made it back again this year after um, Taylor Hawkins died. And it also topped the hot hard rock songs, um, which must be a new chart because I wasn't even aware that there was such a chart, but uh, we'll see if it keeps popping up after this. Um, Yeah. But anyway, um, number seven here, we have live uh, with Turn My Head. Uh, we, we've we had about 10 different variations of live, and now we have the real thing. Uh, this is a ballad. Um, they really should have called this one um, Lightning Crashes Part 2. It's pretty much the same thing, except they added a string section, and it's wimpier this time around. Ugh. Uh, this one did make it up to number three. It was their fifth top five hit on this chart. Um, we aren't done with live yet this series. In fact, their funniest single ever is coming up in the last episode of the series. And uh, we have one more live cop- copycat coming up on this podcast. So, yay. Number six, uh, Matchbox 20 with Push. Well, we just talked about an adult contemporary song by live and now we have the adult contemporary version of live it's it's weirder than hell but these guys were introduced on alternative rock radio first uh this was the second single from um their yourself and someone like you album um the, the first one long day sounded like live live and not adult contemporary live uh, but this was the song that made them stars. Um, without this, you probably would not have had um, Rob Thomas singing about how it's a hot one with um, Carlos Santana. But it's more or less a power ballad. Um, supposedly, they got in trouble with some people for this one because uh, they assumed that it was uh, glorifying domestic violence. And uh, one feminist group actually tried to get it banned for the radio, but it's not about that apparently it, it, it's about um rob thomas actually um getting abused by his girlfriend and he's singing it from her point of view and apparently uh, this ex-girlfriend threatened to sue um thomas for royalties after she figured out the song that was was about her but i don't think this ever made it beyond threats and the only mention that i could ever find about it was from a 25 year old entertainment weekly article uh, but anyway this was um, a huge hit um it was a number one single on this chart um for one week in july um, it also made it to the top five on triple a um mainstream rock and the top 40 airplay charts and it's still in an adult contemporary staple if you turn on an alt uh, an adult contemporary station you're bound to hear this one and um, this wouldn't be um, their last appearance on this chart. Actually, all of the singles from this album made it on here. And I was actually very surprised to find out that Smooth made it onto the alternative charts here, too. Um, yes, Smooth was an alt-rock hit, believe it or not. Um, but this is the last and only appearance for Mashbox 20 or Rob Thomas in this series. So um, let's say goodbye to them. Uh, number five, Oasis with Do You Know What I Mean? Or Do You Know What I Mean? Or whatever. Um, amazingly, this is the first appearance for Oasis in the series. Um, we somehow skipped over Live Forever, Wonderwall, 
champagne super supernova and so on though i think if we did have live forever on the show it would have been like the third time that i've talked about it on this podcast but anyway instead of all that we're getting um the first single from their be here now album an album which is kind of infamous for being a bloated self-indulgent mess and this song fits in fits right in with all of that it's almost eight minutes long there's a minute long intro with like random noises with like planes taking off and back max voice and there's morse code in there and the morse code is supposedly spelling out um bugger all um, pork pies and strawberry fields forever by the way um or at least that's what oasis wanted it to spell out who knows if it actually does spell it and that out but when you do get to the song um liam gallagher more or less sounds like he's falling asleep and there's about three different guitar solos from noel gallagher um they sing the chorus for like two minutes straight and then there's a false ending and then it somehow ends with like guitar feedback and birds chirping um how is this a single (laughs) but um, the video is just as ridiculous. Um, they're they're playing in front of a bombed out building, and they're getting swarmed and buzzed by military ho- helicopters. And it's not like two or three helicopters. It's like they rented out of the British Army's entire fleet of helicopters. I, I'm not sure if this actually happened, but I'm kind of imagining the Gallagher's like not being satisfied with the number of helicopters, like complaining about how there's only 50 helicopters in this thing i mean why not 70 why not 100 i mean what the hell are we doing here if we if we don't have 100 helicopters but <laughs> i i don't really remember this one being played on the radio very often um, mainly because of its length uh, but it was um up in the top five somehow i i'm sure cert- i'm sure certain stations were playing like a um, radio edit of this or some something but um, not surprisingly this one did make it to number one in the uk it also topped the charts in ireland spain and finland too but this is the last that we're going to hear from oasis in this series um it's kind of fitting that their only only appearance came in the same episode where uh, blur made their only appearance um kind of keeping the rivals together but anyway um moving on to number four we have um sarah mclaughlin with building a mystery in the first episode of the series i i mentioned the the radio stations up in cleveland were trying their hardest to make sarah mclaughlin happen in 94 but the listeners of those stations weren't really having it well she finally made it in 97 uh, this was the year when um, Lilith Fair started up, um, which was kind of a Lollapalooza-style um, package tour started by McLaughlin to uh, feature female musicians. And the tour was very successful. Um, it was the number one package tour of 97. I'm not sure which other package tours were going on then, but this was the number one. And I was actually personally affected by their date in Minnesota. I, I wasn't at the show, but they, they played at a horse track in the area, which was all the way out in like the southwest corner of the Twin Cities. And this place just happened to be on the one road that went from where I was working to where my dad lived, which was where I was staying at the time. But anyway, my, my shift at work ended at roughly the same time that Will Fair was wrapping up. So 
I got stuck in Lilith Fair traffic for like about an hour and hour and a half um, coming home that night. Uh, normally, that trip took like ten minutes, so I was cursing Sarah McLaughlin um, back then. But anyway, um, Lilith Fair was doing great, and um, she came out with her surfacing album, which was also doing great, um, in large part due to this song. Um, it's kind of a typical Sarah McLachlan song, but it's not bad. Uh, the one thing I noticed about this after re-listening to this is that um, Sarah drops an F-bomb in the middle of it, um, something which I never would have expected from Sarah McLachlan. Um, I, I assume there had to have been a clean version of this because I don't remember this song ever getting bleeped out on the radio or or anything and i also thought that she said ass in this song too but apparently she's just saying rasta as rasta for some reason <laughs> i'm not sure why she's pronouncing that way but she does but anyway this was her biggest hit on this chart um it peaked one place higher than this um it did go to number one in her native canada and it, it was actually her only number one hit up there which sort of surprised me but this one also ended up winning a Grammy for um, Best Female Pop Vocal and the Juno Award for the Song of the Year. Um, the Junos are the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys, um, in case you're wondering, in case you're not Canadian. And this is her last appearance in the series, um, which isn't really surprising um, because this chart is about to get very unfriendly for the whole for the whole Lilith Fair scene. But anyway, um, moving on to number three here, Sublime with the Wrong Way. Uh, they were still churning out posthumous hits from the self-titled album in 97. And shockingly, this wasn't the last single that they'd end up putting out from that album either. Um, they had one more coming. But anyway, this song is really creepy. <laughs> it's about a 12-year-old hooker. And Brad Knoll, or the character that he's playing in the song, uh, wants to save her from the streets, but he ends up screwing her anyway. Uh, nice song there. Um, kind of getting the Gary Glitter seal of approval for this one. Anyway, this was its peak on the chart. That's all I'm going to say for it. Number two, um, Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth. Uh, we're finally into the smash mouth era dear lord um this was the first single from the fushu mang album yeah um it's sort of a 60s thing um they break out the farfisa or the vox continental for this one um it didn't start out that way um it was actually a rap song believe it or not and it was written in the aftermath of the rodney king riots a few years before this um Greg Camp, the guy who wrote this one, had this to say about it. Uh, this song is basically a social and racial battle cry. It was sort of like a can't we all get a long song for the time when I wrote it. Um, it was just about things that were going on around me as a young person. I'm like, God, what is going on? I don't understand why this is happening. Um, it's like we might as well be walking on a planet on fire. Um, I always interpret this as like a betrayal of the 60s hippie ideals type of thing. But if the guy who wrote it says that it's about um, the aftermath of Rodney King, I guess it's about that, I guess. 
Um, and we have MTV VJ um, Carson Daly to thank for both this song and Smash Mouth um, coming out of the woodwork. Um, he kind of championed the band while he was working as a DJ in their hometown of um, San Jose. And after he moved onto a different station in L.A., um, he still championed them there. Um, he added the song to the rotation. And because of that, they got the record deal. And it's all his fault. And as his, as a punishment, he got stuck playing Backstreet Boys videos for a few years. Um, but anyway, the, the song was weirdly critically acclaimed at the time. Um, it actually finished in eighth place in 97's Pass and Jump singles poll. Um, some of the songs that it finished ahead of um, back then were um, White Town's Your Woman, um, the Notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize, um, Firestarter, and uh, both Around the World and The Funk by Daft Punk. It's better than all of those. Uh, the critics said so, so it has to be. Um, this was number one on here for five weeks. Um, we aren't done with Smash Mouth yet. Um, they are popping up in the last two installments of this series, believe it or not. Um, I'm excited about that. But anyway, we're finally to the top of the 1997 mountain. And at number one, we have Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray with Fly. Uh, this was kind of a change of direction for them. Uh, prior to this, these guys were basically just like a jokey um, punk metal band. Um, th the single from the album before this, um, which was called Mean Machine, um, used to pop up on um, 120 minutes on MTV every once in a while. I just remember being like totally repulsed by it. It was, it was just like the worst shit ever. I never expected to hear from these guys again. I mean, it was basically just like a novelty song. But, you know, two years later, here they are at the very top. And um, the reason why they change directions after Mean Machine was um, that they were on the verge of getting dropped by their label. Uh, they had to come up with something quick. So they added a DJ, um, pretty late 90s thing to do. And instead of writing garbage like Mean Machine, they just decided to go in a different direction and write different garbage. Um, this song is kind of like light and breezy. It has some dance hall reggae toasting on it. Um, they quote Gilbert O'Sullivan uh, for some unknown reason. I mean, it's barely a song, but it is somewhat catchy. Um, somehow, um, this just managed to capture the zeitgeist of the summer of 97, and it was completely inescapable. I mean, you heard this all the damn time. It, it was number one on this chart for eight weeks. Um, it was number one on the Hot 100 Airplay charts for six weeks. It, it was everywhere. Um, the place where I was working up in Minnesota, um, which was an amusement park, um, had a house band and um, their stage was like right next to the ride where I was stationed at. And this song was a regular part of their set list. So not only did I have to hear them play this every night at the end of my shift, I had to listen to them rehearsing it like all fucking day. It, it was the worst, but for the record of Walking on the Sun was also on their set list. So I could have told that story there. But, you know, why not wait for number one for that one? But anyway, um, this was a total fluke. Um, something which shouldn't have happened at all. 
Um, the band acknowledged this by titling their follow-up album to the one that this was on, um, 1459, uh, in reference to Andy Warhol's minutes, 15 minutes of fame. Um, they really should have had just one second left, but no, they managed to have a few hits after this. Uh, one of which we still have coming up in this series. So um, not bad for the Mean Machine guys. But anyway, that wraps it up for um, this installment. Um, for the next one, we're going to September 12th, 1998. That will be the penultimate um, episode of this series. So I um, hope you um, tune in for that one. But that's it for this one. Um, see you next time. Bye.